So today we're in week two of a missional life. And I've told some of you the story of when I wore a name tag that said Hazel on it. Uh, this is when I worked at Tim Hortons north of Toronto. And I worked full time from the, the wee hours of the morning until two in the afternoon. And I was in the back glazing donuts and baking. And I just remember getting like up to my elbows and glaze, which would set like cement on my arm hair. And it was just not super fun. But sometimes they would bring me to the front of the store to help customers. And in that case, they said, oh, I'm sorry, we don't actually have a name tag for you and our machine is broken, so you get to be Hazel today. Okay, you know, I mean, not, not the worst thing that's ever happened. Um, but there was a customer who was like, oh, Hazel, what a lovely name. You don't see a lot of Hazels anymore. Oh, tell me, did somebody, I, I just kind of like kept serving customers and I tried to kind of, you know, laugh it off because I didn't want to get into the, you know, well, actually my name's not Hazel thing. And everything was fine until I did my evening shift from 4 to 10 at the dollar store at a different mall. And the same lady comes in a few days later and she's like, Hazel! But of course at the dollar store my name tag said Meredith. She's like, you're not Hazel. I'm like, no, I'm really sorry, I'm not. <laughs> so that's one of my core memories from that job. Uh, I also remember that I read for the first time in that job, The Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence, who was a monk who had worked in the kitchens much of his life. and was talking about cultivating a life of constant prayer and of constant attention to God, no matter what kind of work he was doing. And so as I glazed the donuts, I was learning to pray with every breath that I breathed, right? And I would pray for my coworkers. And uh, my coworkers almost all were, were uh, followers of a, of, a, of a different religion. They weren't Christians. And uh, I had the opportunity to invite one of my coworkers to come to church with me. And she said, yes, she was interested in spiritual things, interested in Jesus. And I remember I didn't have a cell phone at the time. This is like, I don't know, 04 or something. Um, and I remember waiting for her at the subway station, getting ready to go to church, and she didn't show up. And, and I just felt bad because I'm like, did I miss her? Like, I've been praying for this all summer. Like, the summer's just about over oh, man, what happened? Like, did I not pray hard enough that I could find her? I can't afford a cell phone, but should I have had a phone? Like, just all, all these things, right, of like, man, I was so excited that God seemed to be doing something in her life, but it just, what happened? And I was carrying that, that with me. That's a story that I was reminded of as I was, I was reading and going through week two of A Missional Life here. That we're doing a course here called The Missional Life. It's taken from New York City from a couple pastors. Uh, and... As I've said last week, I'm doing something that I haven't done a lot before, is I'm taking their sermon outlines and I'm preaching them. So this one is from a guy named Tyler Preeb. We have permission to do this. It's part of the course, so we're allowed to do this. But he tells a story of him being on an internship in northern India. And he was doing a business internship, and so he was working with people who were from other countries. So he was from the States, other people were from England, some were students from northern India themselves. And he said, you know, I just, I learned so much in that time, that this was an outwork of my calling to do economic development with the poorest of the poor, and I really believe that God was calling me into this field. So I got to make friends for this from the summer, you know, again, from northern India, or from Europe, from the different Ivy League places, as well as some locals, and they would do a bunch of business-related stuff and class-related stuff, but they'd also hang out in the weekends. And as he was doing this, Tyler said, I really felt in my heart to share the gospel with one of my classmates. There was a girl there who was interested in spiritual things. I got the impression that God wanted to do something in her life. 
And he was wondering, like, how, how can I engage? Because people here had all sorts of different faiths, right? There was Muslims, there was Hindus, there was Sikh people, there was Christians. And he thought, you know, an opportunity should come up to bring faith into the conversation. But the summer ended, and Tyler said, I hadn't had that conversation. And I was so discouraged. I was sitting on the plane home, and I was wondering, like, what, what happened here? I'm trying to interpret my experience. And so he says, you know, like, did I disappoint God? Did God not have my back? Did, did, I, did I just not listen? And, and he said this kind of complicated feeling marked me for that summer, and I, and I carried that with me. And as Tyler reflected on this, and as I've reflected on my own experience inviting people uh, to church and talking about Jesus, uh, I agree with Tyler's assessment that we need a deeper and a fuller understanding of what God is doing in that moment. That we need to begin with understanding God's heart as we live a missional life. That as we understand who, more of who God is, we have a better idea of what God is doing, even in moments um, that may not turn out the way that we wanted them to that may not get to that conclusion of somebody crossing the threshold at that moment to accept the gospel. And so today we're going to talk about who God is. This all starts with God, right? Who he is and what he's doing, and what it means to join in with him to live a missional life. So this, this, as I've gone through it, I kind of laughed because I, I've tended personally um, to preach out of like one main passage of scripture, kind of like the exegetical style for a lot of sermons. And over the past couple of years, I've done a little more where it's, it's you know, so, so, uh, several passages of scripture this one was like a ton of passages. And so what I've tried to do is put a couple of them on screen and the rest of them as references. But I actually love being stretched this way to preach kind of the old Pentecostal style where you just get a ton of references thrown at you. So if you want to like grab your phones and take a picture of the slides at any point, go ahead. You'll always be able to grab this on YouTube or on uh, Spotify as well. But there's a lot of content here. And so you can always grab a, a, a picture if you like. Because we're going to talk about three things about God today. God's heart, God's action, and God's invitation. Because what you do flows out of who you are. When I was in seminary at McMaster Divinity, we had three things that every course would look at. It was our, our knowing, our doing, and our being. Because they didn't want to just have people in seminary who'd be pastors who knew. They also didn't want to just have pastors who would just know or do, but to be. Because who we are is the beginning of it. And then if we know things, and it changes who we are, we have formation of our character in our hearts, that affects the being that comes out of it. So as the outcome they measured in their education was to know, to do, and to be. All those things matter. And so what God does, God's actions and invitation flow out of his heart. And this is the heart of God, right? If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've probably heard these passages. And whether this is the 400th time or the first time, I want you to hear these, again, from the heart of God. 1 John 4.10, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son, son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. John 3.16-17, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. Romans 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Luke 19, 10. For the Son of Man came, why? To seek and to save the lost. 
Matthew 9, verse 12. On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. So all these verses, right, they point to the love of God. But we don't want to miss the point because we're familiar with them, right? This isn't a generic niceness. This isn't God just being generically nice or generically pleasant. This is a love that will turn things upside down. This is a love that pursues the sick and the lost and those who need him. This is a radical, countercultural, and passionate love that seeks out people because that is what heaven's heartbeat is. And it's one that upset the religious people, right? Jesus didn't get crucified for having a, a, a generic, pleasant niceness. Jesus was crucified because he declared that the love of God meant that God himself would come down from heaven, die for us because of the seriousness of our sins, and he would save us from our sins, overthrow the devil, defeat death, and pay for all of our sins. So Jesus himself, in his incarnation, breaks our categories. And we don't just get to echo a generic niceness. We proclaim a love of God that declares both the reality of sin and the truth of the gospel, that God loves us enough to not leave us in our sins, to pursue us, to seek us out. And this mission flows out of the love of God. Our mission, the idea of a missional life, of talking to people, of telling them about Jesus, of wanting people to know God, is because of the love of God. Mission exists because love demands it. Not because anger demands it. Not because obligation demands it. Not because responsibility demands it. Not because duty demands it. But because love, the natural outworking of God's love, is God's mission in the world. That's his heart. And God is passionate in pursuing love. So our mission is only an echo and a reflection of God's mission. And any urgency we feel to reach people and to let people know who God is and have them experience and taste his love is just a pale shadow of God's desire to seek and to save the lost. Of God not wanting to condemn the world, but that the world can be saved through him. And so God's love manifests in actions, right? Just as the things in our heart are going to come out in what we do. Our knowing and our being is going to come out in our doing. So God's actions, right? God pursues. We've talked in this church before several times about Luke 15, about the three parables, right? There's a lost coin that a widow seeks to find. There's a pearl in the field that someone pays a great price for. There's a prodigal son. And there's a lost sheep. All of these parables, right, of somebody leaving the one, uh, the 99 sheep to seek the one, or a father who gets up and runs toward his prodigal son when he comes back home, all of these are here to show what God thinks about us, about what God's position and posture is towards a world that doesn't love him, a world that at times hates him, a world that rejects him, a world that says, I have no time or place for this love that, that pursues me. But God's attitude is always like the widow seeking the lost coin like the shepherd seeking the lost sheep, and like the father who is waiting for the prodigal to come home. And he doesn't just sit with his arms crossed in the porch, but gets up and runs towards his son. The, product, the parable of, of, of the lost sheep, right, where a shepherd gets up, leaves his 99 sheep, and goes, seeks out the lost one, and brings it home. Then he, you know, rejoices that he, he's found the lost sheep. The observation is, like, this is bad management, right? This is not... Um, what we would do in business, not what we would do in most scenarios. You don't usually leave what's producing, what's faithful, what's good to go find the one who is out there. But this is God's priority. Tyler Preeve said it this way, and I've quoted it exactly. So the priority of heaven is not on the sustainable stewardship of the flock. 
it's actually on the radical pursuit of the one that's lost. That's why from our human perspective, we write songs like, this is the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Because our math would say it doesn't add up. Our math doesn't understand it. Our ideas get blown apart. But this is what God wants to do, the radical pursuit of the one that is lost. That's what God's heart was. If you've, you know, gone through the parable of the prodigal son, right? We understand if we've had a little bit of the background, what a sacrifice it was for that father to get up and get towards him. Because you did not run in that culture the older that you were, right? You did not get up and go towards someone. It was on, on the son to come to him. And the father, being aged and respected and wealthy, would have walked as slow as possible, right? Just maintained his dignity. That was his status in life. But what does the father do? He gets up. And while the son is still a long way off, he runs towards him. And he gives him the best of the best. Because his son who is lost has come home. That's not a cold, distant father. That's not a parent that's, that's held back. I don't know if any of you have read uh, Dickens' David Copperfield about the, an, an orphan. Or uh, more recently, Barbara Kingsolver uh, did a retelling of that called Demon Copperhead about a boy in the Appalachians and uh, his struggles with addiction. Uh, it is a powerful book. It's hard to read at times, but just very powerful. But there's a moment where he realizes that he's been craving the love of a mother, that his parents, who never, his father was, was dead and his mother always was too caught up in her own stuff, that there was never a parent who pursued him, never a parent that went after him and loved him, and that in a way that had been what he was seeking his whole life. And, and the book is just, you know, heartbreaking for the whole thing. But it ends in the very last bit with this redemption. And I'm like, oh my goodness, what a picture of the gospel, right? What a picture of God's heart to restore and to bind up what's broken and to take what's been blown apart and put it, put it back together. This is the story of the prodigal son. This is the story of the shepherd and the lost sheep. This is God's actions to seek and to save the one who's lost. So God is the one who pursues he is the father who loves us, but he also forgives. Jonah, right, is the biblical prophet who's the quintessential example of how much God forgives. And Jonah's like, I do not want to go preach to those Ninevites. I know, God, you want me to preach to the Ninevites so that they might repent and turn away. But God, like, do you know what they've been doing to our people? Do you know for hundreds of years how they've been torturing us? Like the very inventive ways of ancient torture these Ninevites had done. No, I am not doing that. And Jonah runs away, right? And, you know, again, if you've known the story of Jonah running away and being cast off the boat and being swallowed by a big fish on shore, and finally he reluctantly goes to Nineveh. And he reluctantly preaches the message that they need to repent. And finally, when he's done, he's like, good. Now God can judge them because they're not going to listen, right? Like, this is still Jonah's just stubbornness. What happens, though, right? The Ninevites do repent, they do turn to God, and they do receive his forgiveness. And Jonah got angry, right? Like, how can God's forgiveness extend to those people? How can God actually not, you know, not just preach repentance so that he's justified in zapping them, but, like, preach repentance so that if, if they repent, God actually forgives them? He actually shows mercy? How can this be who God is? And what does God say, right? Jonah 4, verses 11. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell the right hand from their left 
and also many animals, because God cares about them too. This is a city of evil, idolatry, rebellion, resistance to God's purposes. And yet God is so patient and merciful and reaches out to forgive them. When God talks to his own people, right, in Ezekiel 33, he says, Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. So turn, turn from your evil ways. Why would you die, O people of Israel? And in the New Testament, Peter says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some of you understand slowness, and said he's patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to you, repentance. God pursues, and God also forgives. He's patient because he wants to show mercy to as many people as possible. God doesn't play favorites. So God pursues, God forgives, and God also rescues. God fights back in the evil of the world. When we perceive injustice, when we perceive evil, we aren't going, man, God, you know, could I just stir you to do something about it? Again, we are catching an echo of God's heart, of God's initiative to resist and fight back and break the power of the devil in the world. I love the way Tyler worded it here. He said this, Christianity is a realistic religion. Christianity recognizes and names the evil in the world. Look at systematic injustice, violence, racism, exploitation, sex trafficking, and say, these things are evil. These things are bad. This is not what God intended. But we have a God who stands with us. Rather, we stand with him because he's already doing it in resisting and breaking all the types of oppression. Everything that is contrary to his will. I mean, the defining story of Israel is what? The Exodus, right? He led them out of Egypt, out of slavery, and that is their origin story, right? That Abraham has been led, and then they're into Egypt to save them, and then God's led them out of Egypt. God is a deliverer who saves them. And then in the New Testament, right, what do we see Jesus do? Jesus who goes into Egypt, then out of Egypt, right, because there's a parallel there. And Jesus saves us from the power of sin, death, and the devil. God's the one who leads his people out and liberates us. And that is not just a, you know, again, a social thing or a political thing, but that every single thing inside us and outside us, God is greater than. God has power over. And when we catch an idea that we can work against exploitation, against injustice, against either individual circumstances or systems that hurt people's humanity and destroy them, we're joining in what God wants to do because God cares for his people. Hebrews 2 says this, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. 2 Timothy 1 verse 10 says, Our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And so Jesus is the victor, right? His power comes and fights for us. He is the one that liberates us when we're enslaved. He's the one that helps us work for that in the world, as well as declare that for each person, that that's a reality Jesus has paid for. God's not a bystander. He's not a bystander to, to systemic evil. He's not a bystander to exploitation. He's not, not a bystander to racism. God is the one who says, I have come to set my people free. And we get to join in the work he's doing. So God pursues. God forgives. God rescues. And finally... As the book of Ephesians tells us, God reconciles. A professor I had in Bible college, Lucia Lombardi, wrote a book called A New Humanity. 
And several years ago when he had released the book, we were doing a sermon series on it based on it at the summit. And uh, I hadn't seen him really in, in a few years, uh, but Jared and I got to kind of help him uh, tour around the city and hang out for an afternoon. I just love talking about that message of Ephesians, that God has created a new humanity. He has reconciled people that we thought were irreconcilable. And uh, as I've continued to get to know Luch a little bit better, and uh, he's done some coaching uh, professionally for me, I've just been so thankful for that perspective and that understanding of Ephesians, that God is the one who creates a new humanity by reconciling people that we never thought could be reconciled. And again, that happens as an outworking of how he's reconciled us to God, right? That's what Jesus has done. He has taken a broken relationship, which needed repair, and repaired it. Ephesians 2.14 says this, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. That is destroying the barrier between different ethnic groups. When God made the promise to Abraham in Genesis, right, he didn't say, I'm just going to bless your people. He said, all nations on earth will be blessed through you, right? Second Corinthians says this, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. See, God's agenda is to reconcile people to himself. And I've told the story before from David Fisher of how he gives us ambassador status, right? That we are the ones who carry a, mis- a message that is not our own and a mission that's not our own. We don't come up with the content of what we think the gospel is about, but God gives us a message of reconciliation. With the message we're on and the mission we carry, they're not our own, they're God's. And he's committed that to us to embody and live out and declare what God has done for us. So out of this, right, out of God's heart and out of God's actions, that's where we get God's invitation. And that's the invitation that we're going to have today. I put it like this. I don't think they had it on the screen in the course, but I really appreciated how they had it. God's invitation is this, to let the love of God flood into our hearts and let that be the fuel and the foundation for our missional life. God's love pours into our hearts, it floods into our hearts, and that is our fuel and the foundation for living in a missional way because God begins with his love. And that's what God wants us to do. Romans 5, 5 says this, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been giving to us. 2 Corinthians 5 says, for Christ's love compels us. That's what keeps us ticking. That's what motivates us. That's what fuels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves. No longer live for their reputation or their ideas or their political perspective or their interests. But for him who died for them and was raised again. You see, if it's not Christ's love compelling us, we're not going to have the right fuel or foundation to live a missional life. Mission compelled by fear isn't what God's heart is. Mission compelled by ambition is not what God's heart is. Not by ego, not by church survival, not by unlimited expansion. (laughs) Not by envy. None of these are the mission of God. And if we fuel our mission with any of these things, whether it's fear, ambition, or envy, or unlimited expansion, any of those, that's not going to bring God's heart and God's mission. 
E.W. Tozer famously said, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And it's true, right? If what we think about when we think about God is not his unbelievable, astounding love shown in Jesus Christ, our mission will be fueled by something that isn't God's fuel for mission. But it is God's love for people that drives him to rescue and pursue and protect and reconcile that has to be our fuel and our foundation. God's doing this. So Tyler's back in Manhattan, 10 years after he's gone to northern India for his internship. And he's in a coffee shop, and he hears his name, and he turns around, and it's the girl that he felt God wanted to do something in her life. And he goes like, well, what are you doing here, right? Like, like what are the odds that you were in New York after this cohort in India 10 years ago? And he remembers what God had, had put in his heart, this impression to speak to her. And uh, he doesn't, like, do that in the coffee shop that instant, right? He invites her to a birthday party at his house or his apartment in New York City. And so she gets there a few days later. She comes to the birthday party. And there's, like, 30 to 40 people crammed into the apartment. A lot of us have been to those parties. Those are the best kind, right? And he's watching her go from person to person and talk to people and say, how do you know each other? And she's like, oh, you know each other from church. That's interesting. Tell me more about that. And she's hearing over and over how God has brought people together in New York City, in this community, and what God's done in their lives from a whole bunch of people in Tyler's apartment. And Tyler's looking at this going, man, only God, right? Only God can care about someone so much to coordinate through time and space all of these things happening that at that moment she'd be hearing about God from so many people and continuing his work in his life. And he said at that time, you know, I, was just, I was so stunned, he says, and so filled with the knowledge of God's love. I didn't have to talk God into it. I didn't have to convince God that this person was worth it. God was already at work, and he wanted me to join in what he was already doing. And so God's love is at work in the world, and that's our, our source of mission. One of the things that we do just really basically as a church, we've done it over the last several years, is we do things to demonstrate God's love to this city. And that means that you know, we're going to preach the Bible, we're going to preach the gospel, we're going to do different classes and things like Alpha, where we talk about who God is, but we're also going to demonstrate in practical ways the love of God. And I want to ask you guys to do something a little bit different to finish off the service. Um, maybe somebody who's close can maybe hand out those papers and those little markers. This, this month what we did was we just gave a gift card to Northway Wellness Center. just said thank you to people for what they were doing. Because, again, we said it's a church that's doing it because this is what God wants us to do. But we recognize and we love our city because God loves them. And we recognize where God is working. But this is a bunch of ideas that two people can do to show love to our city. And we want to do this every month. Not just to say we're nice people. Not just to say, boy, we thought this would be fun. Not just to say, you know, boy, this might be some good press. But to actually say, how do we demonstrate in action, the love of God? How do we demonstrate the initiative that God does to show us love? How do we demonstrate and give God the credit that he's the one that we're doing it, these ways to our city? So as we close, we go into coffee time. I just have a really simple thing to ask you to do for this. Would you take a look at this after we pray? And would you just highlight one thing there? Would you go, boy, this looks like an interesting idea. Maybe we could do that. And then during coffee, as we hang out after the service, I want us to talk about it. 
We can bring it to Life Group as well on Wednesday and talk about that as well. But say, what can we do to show our city how much God loves them? That God wants us to do this individually, right? But also, how as a church do we say, let's demonstrate the love of God and let people know that God's the reason that we're doing it? So I'm going to close in prayer, and then I invite you to take a look at that and grab a coffee after the service. Lord, we thank you that we get to join in with what you're already doing. God, I thank you for those moments where we (laughs) find out that you're already at work in a situation. We thank you for those moments, God, where we catch a glimpse of the fact that our desire to see people saved is just an echo of your heart, is just a shadow, God, of your desire that no one would perish, that everyone would know the truth. And God, as we go today, I pray that you would put on our hearts ways that we can demonstrate that, ways that we can do that, Ways that as the church we can continue to enact and show your pursuing love, your forgiving love, and your reconciling love to a city that needs to know you as their Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Go with God.